Post Reports is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, February 20th. Today, Mike Bloomberg's debut at a Democratic debate and how the president's rhetoric has spread to schoolyards. If you could use one word to describe Wednesday's debate in Las Vegas, what would it be? It was rough. Michael Shear is a national political reporter for The Post. He talked about the debate with our colleague Nicole Ellis. We've gradually watched these things become more and more combative. And this was not gradual at all. This was a whole different level of constant attack and interruption. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. Then I think that turning to someone like Mayor Bloomberg, who thinks he can buy this election, is no better a way to succeed than turning to somebody like Senator Sanders, who wants to burn the house down. Most of the people on that stage are facing the very real prospect that in the next week or two, their presidential dreams will be over, and they have to do something and move quick. Maybe we should also ask how Mayor Bloomberg in 2004 supported George W. Bush for president. Second to that, they had the 12th richest man in the world suddenly appearing on stage next to them, and they weren't quite happy about it. I think we need something different than Donald Trump. I don't think you look at Donald Trump and say, we need someone richer in the White House. Mayor Bloomberg has entered the race a little more than 10 weeks ago, has spent $340 million on advertising since then. It's probably a larger number now. To put that in context, that's as much money as Barack Obama spent in his entire 2012 re-election campaign on advertising. And he's done it all in a way that has been incredibly controlled. He has not made himself vulnerable in any way. And that has been really frustrating for his rivals. They haven't been able to land shots at him because they can't afford to compete where he is competing, which is on the airwaves. So Mayor Mike Bloomberg was on stage and under assault almost all night on a wide range of issues from his handling of sexual harassment claims at his company to body jokes he's allegedly told in the past to his approach to stop and frisk policing, which targeted black and Latino youth in New York City for years. To his enormous wealth, which is really unprecedented for a politician on a national stage. I want to kind of start with his responses to each sort of criticism that he got. For example, his treatment of women and NDAs. He has gotten some number of women, dozens, who knows, to sign non-disclosure agreements, both for sexual harassment and for gender discrimination in the workplace. So, Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? You hear Senator Warren 
press him about non-disclosure agreements and wanting to know more about his track record. And she also argues that it's not just a question of his moral character. This is also a question about electability. We are not going to beat Donald Trump with a man who has who knows how many non-disclosure agreements and the drip, drip, drip of stories. Of- how did he deal with that, considering not really being used to being in an environment where he doesn't have control over not only his audience, but his narrative. He didn't really go beyond where he's been before, and, and that is to say, he says... We have a very few non-disclosure agreements. Uh, how many Let is Let me that? finish. How many is that? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. And let me just put, and let me put, there's a be, agreements between two parties that wanted to keep it quiet, and that's up to them. They sign those agreements, so, and we'll live with it. So NDAs, which are contracts that are signed often under duress. I mean, the, the idea of an NDA is you're going to get a financial settlement, usually with a much wealthier organization, in this case, his company. And they're going to give you money for something that happened without admitting guilt. And in exchange, you are going to promise not to talk about whatever this thing was that happened. That's not how it works. The way it works is they say, look, this is what you did to me. And the mayor comes along and his attorney say, I will give you this amount of money if you promise you'll never say anything. That's how it works. Mayor Bloomberg, final word to you. I said we're not going to get to end these agreements because they were made consensually and they have every right to expect that they will stay private. If they want to release it, they should be able to release themselves. When he talks about this, he talks about it as a fully consensual agreement in which two parties totally agreed. And it, it's not an argument that goes very far. I mean, we've reported, you know, that there are people who have been part of these agreements who very likely would be willing to talk if they were set free from the agreements, and he won't acknowledge that. He says this is a contractual agreement between two parties, and it wouldn't be fair to release them from those agreements. On stop and frisk, he also got a lot of pushback from Warren, Sanders, and Biden. How did he handle responding to that? So this is the big policy switch that his team and and he knew he had to address from the beginning. The week before he formally announces his campaign last year, he goes to a church in Brooklyn and he gives a speech in which he apologizes, uses the word I apologize, says very clearly that he was wrong about uh, his years of defense of this policy. And he has repeated that apology frequently since then. I think where he stumbled last night on the debate stage was in not actually acknowledging in any real way the pain the policy had caused for Black and Latino, mostly youth in New York City, and their families to know that that their communities were being targeted and that people could be stopped on the street, thrown up against a wall, patted down for doing nothing wrong other than being in the wrong neighborhood and being suspicious in somebody's eyes. If I go back and look at my time in office, the one thing that I'm um, really worried about, embarrassed about, was how it turned out um, with stop and frisk. And, and that, that's sort of a key political gene that politicians tend to need to have. You know, you have to be able to feel the pain of the people you're talking to. You have to be able to acknowledge their suffering and 
he kind of breezed through that. The language he used is about stop and frisk. It's about how it turned out. Now, this isn't about how it turned out. This is about what it was designed to do to begin with. You need a different apology Senator, here. Thank Let's you. get the facts straight. Let's get the order straight. And it's not whether he apologized or not. It's the policy. The policy was abhorrent. And it was, in fact, a violation of every right people have. The third big topic that came up that Bloomberg got a lot of attacks on was his billionaire status. How did he handle defending his wealth? Yeah, this is an interesting dilemma, and it's not one we've seen in politics. We've had wealthy people run uh, for office before, some successfully, some famously unsuccessfully. We haven't really had someone this wealthy run for office. There's a big difference between someone worth you know, a few hundred million dollars or a couple billion dollars and someone worth— you know, 50 or $60 billion. And Senator Sanders went after it directly in saying that it was, in his words, immoral for society to allow any single person to accumulate that much wealth. Mike Bloomberg owns more wealth than the bottom 125 million Americans. That's wrong. That's immoral. That should not be the case when we got a half a million people sleeping out on the street. And I think that presents an interesting question for the Democratic Party, an interesting question for the country. I think there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of support in the country and the party for successful people being successful. I think the question is whether success that is measured at $60 billion is a problem for the society at large. And I think there is more sympathy for that point of view, given that much of the middle class for three decades now has really been struggling just to tread water, while the wealthiest in the country, not just the, you know, the very wealthy billionaires, but people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, have continued to thrive. Mayor Bloomberg, should you exist? I can't speak for all billionaires. All I know is I've been very lucky, made a lot of money, and I'm giving it all away to make this country better. And a good chunk of it goes to the Democratic Party as well. And, and his answer on the debate stage was, I earned that money and I deserve that money, full stop. Should you have earned that much money? Yes, I worked very hard yeah. for it, and I'm giving okay. it away. And it wasn't just a big pylon for Bloomberg. You know, in so many other ways, we saw really tense moments with all the other candidates going at each other. What were some of the moments that stood out to you? Yeah, so there's these subplots going on on the stage. There's obviously a deep animosity, which we've known about for a while, between Klobuchar and Buttigieg, and that came out at several points in the night. My colleague specifically asked you if you could name the president of yes. Mexico, and your response was no. Yes, that's right. And I said that I made an error. You're on the committee that does trade. You're literally in uh, part of the committee that's overseeing these things. And we're not able to speak to literally the first thing about the politics of the country you, to ourselves. Are you trying to say that I'm dumb or are you mocking me here, Pete? I'm I saying that you shouldn't trivialize I made an error. It became rather personal. And, and the, what's going on there is that they're both basically fighting for the same vote, for the, the moderate non-Biden uh, non-Bloomberg vote. I think Warren was also very interesting last night. Uh, she she had a really disappointing result in Iowa, another disappointment in New Hampshire. She had a very tame debate performance, and she kind of turned it on in a way we haven't seen all cycle. She's been incredibly disciplined. She's avoided attacking other people, but her message has been, I'm a fighter. We know she's a debate champion from from high school and college. 
her taking apart Bloomberg the way she did, I think, demonstrated something that her supporters have wanted to see for a long time and could lead to some increased support over the coming weeks. Bloomberg has been a billionaire for a while. Stop and Frisk has been criticized for a very long time as well. And the criticism of how he's spoken to women and the awareness of these non-disclosure agreements are also not new. On the one hand, this is his first debate. But on the other hand, he and his campaign saw these attacks coming. How could he not be prepared? Well, his campaign, I think, is prepared for all of this. He is not prepared as a performer or, you know, it may not be a question of performance. He may not be personally prepared to show emotion or admit fault or demonstrate empathy. There was a part of me that also wasn't surprised. I was out with him last week in Tennessee, uh, and he's been campaigning pretty aggressively. He he travels the country almost every day. He gives two or three events sometimes. He's meeting crowds of, you know, hundreds, if not over a thousand at some of these events. But what's notable about them is that Unlike the other candidates who have who've sort of grown into improvisational actors who can communicate their message in, in the moment, in any scenario, Mayor Bloomberg's campaign style up to this moment has been 15 minutes on a teleprompter, delivering the same stump speech, and then leaving the stage. He's relied up to this point on a lot of crutches that you just cannot bring to the debate stage. Do you think any of this will really matter considering he's he's not really an option for Nevada voters or for South Carolina voters, for that matter. I think it does matter uh, for a couple of reasons. One, he needs to keep climbing. He can't just keep the support he has. The stakes are enormously high right now. And he still has to make the sale with a lot of people who have not yet bought into the Bloomberg idea. That's one reason. And the second reason is, I think it this all undercuts the message of those ads. And even if more people see the ads than hear about the debate or watch the debate or read new news coverage of the debate. It still will seep into the system. That maybe these ads aren't really showing you the real Mike Bloomberg. Maybe these ads are showing you an idealized version of this guy. And maybe he won't be able to go up against Donald Trump, which is really the promise of his campaign. Vote for me and I will get it done. I will spend my money. I will uh, figure out a way of beating Trump and running this country better. Michael Shear is a national political reporter at The Post. Nicole Ellis is a video reporter and a guest host of Post Reports. A lot was written around the election about what's called the Trump effect suggesting that there would be this trickle-down. You got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Ah, oh, I don't remember. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. That guy's got a serious weight problem. That his language would eventually impact children. We knew anecdotally that was true, but we didn't know if it was still happening. And as we dug deeper and deeper, we realized, oh, this is happening every single week in schools. John Woodrow Cox and Hannah Natanson just completed this exhaustive analysis. They looked at media coverage of bullying in schools. John came up with this great research formula we were able to use to sort of identify 28,000 news articles from the start of 2016 till now reporting bullying. 
we were eventually able to identify more than 300 incidents where children were using Trump's name or words to bully one another. And from there, going through and trying to find students who had been affected by that, whose names were in those news stories, and then trying to get in touch with them and their families. Wait, so you were individually looking through 28,000 news stories about bullying. Well, we had a really strict criteria, you know, so we saw thousands of incidents of swastikas and racist bullying that critics of the president say, you know, he's exacerbated with his language. But we didn't count those because unless there was a direct Trump connection, we weren't counting him. So you were looking for moments of bullying where someone said the word Trump or what were some of the phrases that you were looking for when you were skimming through all these news articles? We were looking for phrases that the president might have used to target political opponents, for example, like the time he tweeted. Go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. Mr. Trump added, so interesting to see progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe. So that was a big one. Another huge one was build the wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Well, yeah, we were really strict. I and mean, what we would see often were uh, messages of hate that were then paired with Trump. So you'd see a swastika next to the word Trump. So people would take things that maybe he didn't necessarily say and just attach his name to it. So some of these incidents were documented on video, right? Like, what, describe some of those. A lot of them at sports games. There were a lot of incidents at sports games where a, you know, mostly white student section or potentially all white student section would start chanting, build the wall. There was an incident where a, a student filmed... A teacher. I ain't getting, no, you were, I'm talking about the wall. You said I'm getting kicked oh, out. Oh, you're getting kicked out of my country. Yeah, I ain't getting, it's not your country. I'm part of it too. It's my country. It's my country too then. It's been mine longer than it's been yours. And then there was another where two radio broadcasters. Oh, not too bad. Okay. Not the greatest, but we'll, yeah. get, we'll get through it. was before a basketball game and they didn't know they were on a hot mic and they were reading the names of the opposing players and they had some... Hispanic names. Enzo Gabara, Spencer Espigio, Nicholas Padilla for Eagle Grove. They have a lot of apparently Espanol people. Espanol people in Eagle Grove. Gee, I wonder why that is. I wonder why. The guy at the end of this conversation says, as Trump would say, go back where they came from. Well, some would say that, yeah. Some days I feel like that, too. Yeah. And so you talked to some of the kids who were victims of this or who witnessed this and were really troubled by it. What was who, – who did you talk to and, and what did they say about what it was like seeing these things unfold in front of their eyes? Hi, I'm Hannah. You must be Miracle. Yes. <laughs> I'm Joanna. It's nice to So I talked to one girl named Miracle Slover who lives in Texas. And what happened to her was that she had an English teacher, Georgia Clark. And Miracle alleges that sort of from the start of this past school year, she knew something was up. For well, when school first started, we had a senior chart the first week. But after like four weeks, our senior chart changed. It changed. This teacher, according to Miracle, 
separates the class by race. All the African Americans were in the back, and then the Caucasian kids were in the front. And the other days were empty, so it was like we were all just crammed in the back, like a whole game. Was it supposed to be part of like some kind of teaching exercise, or she just straight up told all the non-white kids to go to the back of the room. I mean, it's hard to know what was going through her head because she, through her lawyer, one, did not want to talk to me, and two, denied it. From Miracle's perspective, I can say that she just felt that her teacher was quite racist, an impression that was reinforced by her later behavior. A teacher in Texas is on the verge of losing her job for what she tried to say one-on-one to President Trump, uh, urging him to help her, quote-unquote, uh, about the illegals in her school, her word. This sort of goes national once the teacher, Georgia Clark, in what she thought were private messages, tweets at President Trump asking his help deporting undocumented immigrants from the school system. She thought they were private messages, but they weren't. And so those wound up going viral and uh, she was fired. Is this an isolated thing or are there other examples of teachers who are saying this stuff to their students? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of examples of coaches, of teachers. Sometimes they argue, oh, this was a joke. But she was one of more than 30 educators across the country who we found had harassed their students using some sort of Trump-related rhetoric. And what were some of the other things that you heard from kids about the things that they'd experienced? The impact of these incidents was enormous for some of these kids. One student in particular. My mom was from Mexico. Okay. And she immigrated over here when she was like 10, maybe. And my dad's from Seattle. Shanti Bonilla, who is Mexican-American and her father is half black. She lives in a very white community in Idaho. So in class, we would always like the topic of Trump would get brought up. And I feel like all the eyes were on me. Yeah. And I feel like I just didn't belong. Or they just like say like comments like build the wall and like, are you from here? Do you, can you speak? And she tweeted something that was critical of Trump supporters and it just took off. There was a, another student in her um, school who took it and put it on Snapchat And in the background was a Confederate flag. And uh, he basically said that, you know, any Mexicans coming into this country at all made him angry. And the next day, you know, she hoped it would blow over. But the next day I parked my car, got out, walked to class. And all I heard them saying was, go back to Mexico. You're illegal. When she came back from lunch, she found that other kids had tied a rope to the back of her car and tied it, attached it to a truck and written uh, Trump 2020 Republican on her back window. My like heart just drops. I'm like, how can this happen? How can people let this happen? And just, they all stayed just laughing, just watching me cry as I untied the car. And like, I was shaking so much, like I couldn't even like, I couldn't. You know, it was such a traumatic incident for her that she quit school and started having panic attacks. I thought I had friends I could rely on, but it turns out all those friends that did it were my closest friends too. And people supported them and were like, you're just being dramatic, you're going to ruin their lives by doing this. She uh, really spiraled into a depression and ultimately tried to take her own life. And, you know, she's doing much better now. 
and is, you know, owning her story and really learning more about her heritage and taking more pride in it. But it altered the course of her life. And, you know, one thing she said to me that really has just stuck with me was, you know, I asked her what Trump's name has come to mean to her. And what she said was, It means you don't belong. And that was just his name. Often, it's not even Trump's rhetoric that kids will use against each other. They'll just yell his name. They'll surround a student normally of color and just yell Trump at them. One of the students I interviewed who had been told to go back to her country, uh, she's African-American, at a volleyball game, what she told me was that she was not at all surprised that this is something, because this was shortly after Trump had tweeted, go back to the four minority congresswoman. And she was not at all surprised that he had tweeted that. And when I asked her how she feels about the president, she told me, oh, yeah, he doesn't want me in the country. So there seems to be a whole group of kids that are just growing up. I mean, she's quite young. She's in high school. They just grow up believing that the president does not want them here. And it was just like a fact of life for her. I think it's important to note that the bullying was not exclusively directed at students who were of color or anti-Trump. There were a lot, dozens of pro-Trump students who were bullied, picked on, and often in violent ways. There were students who were punched and kicked. And so, you know, while the publicly reported incidents, it was close to seven to one in the direction of Trump supporting kids, bullying those on the other side. It's not just going one direction. And do you think that what kids are seeing is just like a shift in how people are choosing to bully other kids that maybe they would have been made fun of in another way 10 years ago and now they're talking about President Trump? Or do you think that the amount of bullying that's happening has increased because of Trump's rhetoric? So we have no evidence that bullying has increased. So the, there's a federal survey, bullying survey. It did not increase between 2015 before he was elected and 2017 after he was elected. That, that's the most recent data available. So, you know, what we know is that this has given kids a new way to bully each other. Did you reach out to the White House about this and the fact that you've seen all these cases of people using President Trump and his words as a form of bullying in day-to-day life? We did, yeah. I sent them an email and asked them to comment, and they did not address Trump's role at all. They addressed Melania's role. Thank you. As a mother and as first lady, it concerns me that in today's fast-paced and ever-connected world, children can be less... Saying that, you know, her Be Best campaign against bullying, that she's talked to students, you know, worldwide, children all over the world about treating each other with respect. So today, I'm very excited to announce Be Best. And they sort of lashed out at the media saying that, you know, the media blames her for things that she can't control, but they did not address the president's influence at all. What do you think this story says about the lasting legacy of President Trump and his political messaging. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the permanent damage done when the political rhetoric is this mean-spirited. And it's not just the president. It's sort of unleashed other people to really speak to each other in horrible ways. And I do think that will be part of the legacy of this period in our country is that, you know, these kids won't forget what it was like. I got a call from a teacher in San Antonio 
who said, talked about how much fear her students live with all the time about, you know, them being kicked out, their parents being kicked out, them being bullied, them being targeted just because of where they're from or where their parents are from or the color of their skin. And obviously that existed before President Trump took office, no question. But knowing that, you know, these sorts of incidents happen literally every week, that somebody is using the president's name or the president's words to demean another student, we saw in cases as young as six. Those things stick with kids. Hannah Natanson is an education reporter for The Post. John Woodrow Cox is an enterprise reporter. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be out for the next week, so our colleague and friend Nicole Ellis will be coming back to be the guest host. You will love her. And you can follow her on Twitter at Navigating Nikki for updates about the show. Till then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 